Before I read the gospel lesson for the day, I want to offer a word of thanks to our church staff and especially to Andrew Scales, who had about 12 hours notice last week to preach for me when I became sick. I, um, I'm grateful that we have such an incredible staff that can step up. It is not the case that I did not want to preach on the parable of the workers in the field who all got paid the same. So that sermon will be forthcoming at some point soon. I am doing well and fully recovered, and I want to thank you for your thoughts and prayers, though my doctor has warned me that saying over a hundred and some times today that I'm fine, thank you, could be actually dangerous to my health. So, <laughs> so thank you for your support and for your concern, and I'm happy to tell you that I am doing very well. The gospel lesson today, as we continue in our Lenten, our Lenten series of the parables, our gospel lesson is the 21st chapter of the gospel of Matthew, and beginning at the 33rd verse, Matthew 21 and 33. And I invite you to hear the word of God. Jesus said, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, the landowner sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. The tenants beat his slaves, seized his slaves, and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Finally, the landowner sent his son to them. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to Jesus, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is amazing. And it is amazing in our eyes. This is the word of the Lord. In early January, a few months ago, my wife Kathy and I were sitting poolside in a warm place somewhere with a view of the ocean. I find something restorative in long gazes out over the ocean. One morning, I was lost in a book with my body and spirit somewhere between relaxation 
and exhaustion. And I was reading one of my favorite authors, a very well-known one at that. This particular new book does not fall into the author's typical genre, and I will describe my experience of the book only in vague terms in case you might be reading it right now. This piece of fiction could easily be lifted from real life, and a few times I had to stop while I was reading it and think again about whether it may have been just with names and places changed. I had the paper book, paperback book in my hands, and with nothing but free time for a few days, I was plowing through it at quite a pace. It's because I was enjoying it. It was a feel-good story, headed for what was going to be an uplifting, if not tear-jerking, ending. I turned a page at the end of the chapter to read the first paragraph of the next one. Seconds later, much to Kathy's surprise, I threw the book toward the pool and shouted something akin to, you have got to be kidding me. <laughs> the first sentence of the new chapter was this. And they found him dead in the bathroom at 6.30 the next morning. Him being the protagonist of the feel-good, sure-to-be, happy-ending tale. I told Kathy I was so mad at the author that I might never read any of their work again. <laughs> that was not how that calming, enjoyable, poolside read was supposed to end. When our children entered the go-to party at someone's house, the parents don't know stage of being teenagers. We try to do all the things parents are supposed to do. Set the rules, confirm adults will be at the party, who's driving, who's picking up. And one of the parts of the Cook Davis plan was a code word that we, would gave, we gave to them. And if they called and said the word, one of us would immediately come and pick them up, no questions asked. This was before every teenager had a cell phone. So if the party was going bad and you needed to leave, you would have to ask to borrow a phone and you wouldn't want to risk embarrassment in front of your friends, thus a code word. Our code word was pickle. If Hannah or Ben ever called and said, hey, I'm just in a bit of a pickle, or I think I ate a pickle, the kind I'm allergic to, or if you're coming to the party, could you bring some pickles? I would have jumped in the car and been there in a heartbeat. Today, your teenager would just text and say, this is out of control. Will you come and pick me up? Today, as we near the conclusion of our Lenten series with the parables, the text for Palm Sunday, selected by Corey Berg, thank you very much, in this parable, is the parable of the wicked tenants. Corey is teaching adult ed as we speak. And you will want to notice that the parable is actually in the same chapter in Matthew's Gospel, the same chapter as the Palm Sunday account, that I read at the beginning of worship, the reading that launched our processional palm parade. Jesus and that ride on the donkey down from the Mount of Olives and then back up the steep hill to the city walls of Jerusalem 
The parade comes with all of those Hosanna shouts and the branches and the garments strewn on the path. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then here, here in Matthew 21, when Jesus gets to the temple, he overturns the tables, tells the money changers to get out. Then Jesus heals the blind and the lame as the tension among the chief priests and the scribe continues to rise. The very next day, he curses a fig tree in the city and offers some confounding, confusing teaching. And then he comes back to the temple again and has an even more heated exchange with the elders and the chief priests. They confront Jesus and pretty much say, who the heck do you think you are? And so he tells them this parable. He told them the one about a landowner who planted a vineyard. The landowner who tried to collect the harvest. The landowner who ultimately sent two sets of servants to collect his produce and the tenants beat, stoned, and killed them. So the landowner sent his son to collect the produce, figuring the wicked tenants would at least respect the son. No. The tenants seized the landowner's son, took him out of the vineyard, and killed him because they wanted his inheritance. It's the day after the triumphal entry in Matthew. The day after that great Hosanna party, and there in the temple, Jesus is going toe-to-toe with those who are determined to put an end to all this. To put an end to him. And there had to be some followers of Jesus in the temple that morning with a stunned look on their face. As Jesus was telling this parable of violence and death, there must have been those who just about then were starting to get it. Put two and two together. Figure it all out. A son who was sent, now being put to death, You and I, we sort of are expected to think that the crowd surrounding Jesus was full of fickle deniers and betrayers who shout Hosanna one week and crucify him the next. But there had to be some, a few, someone, some follower of Jesus there on the edge of the crowd, just within earshot of the teacher's voice the day after the triumphal entry, someone who hears the one about the death of the son, someone who right then realizes this is going to end badly. Sure, Jesus told them over and over again that this was how it was going to end, but they never really understood it. They never got it. They didn't want to understand it. Who could possibly have wanted to get it? The parade for the Messiah who would save turning into a death march. No way. There had to be someone who shouted to no one in particular and to God all at the same time, it wasn't supposed to end this way. There had to be someone in the temple that morning after Palm Sunday who texted a family member, can you come and get me? This is way out of control. It's the Palm Sunday predicament of faith. The followers of Jesus, you and I, we know where this is headed. The son is being hailed as a king today, but he's going to be sweating drops of blood soon. The son is going to be portrayed and beaten and tried and beaten and tortured and killed. This parade is going bad. 
It's far too easy to shout Hosanna today and he is risen next week. But sometimes, some moment in between, there comes this awful realization that it shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't go this way. And there's not a damn thing you can do about it. And yet today, we still shout Hosanna in the highest. Save us. We know where this parade is headed and we still have to shout to the Son of God, save, save, save. I was invited to coffee a few weeks ago by a friend of mine at the Jewish Center of Princeton. And sitting at a table at the Duncan over at the Princeton Shopping Center, he told me about a recent three-generation family trip to Israel, a visit to a grandson who is studying there this year. I asked him about his favorite spots. He knew I'd been to the region several times, and he asked me about my favorite spots, and I mentioned a few in, around, in and around the Sea of Galilee. And then I told him the view from the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley the old city of Jerusalem was the most meaningful. He wanted to know more about why that was important to me. I think he was genuinely interested about my Christian perspective, but he was also a therapist. He's also a therapist, so maybe he was doing some work. <laughs> I told him it is an incredibly beautiful view from the Mount of Olives. The Garden of Gethsemane is just down the hill. The view across the valley sort of allows you to ignore the four-lane highway that runs so full of cars and tour buses. And you look over at that old wall and the iconic skyline, and after you get your bearings and someone points out the various domes and steeples and rooftops, after you take pictures, you just linger there in silence. And then time and history sort of collapse. And for those of us who follow Jesus, I said to my friend, this unsettling feeling comes, this gnawing at the spirit, a sort of soulful nausea, because the view there from the Mount of Olives, it's a Palm Sunday view. And I told him the Palm Sunday story, that you can see where the parade starts and then you, you trace it down the hill and up the other side and you can see the gate in the wall where the parade passed through and, and you just know, you know what's going to happen, how the parade goes bad, how it all ends in his death. Then I stopped and I apologized to my friend for preaching there at the Duncan. But my friend Lou, he was just smiling and and listening. That Palm Sunday view, when you know how the parable ends, how he so willingly empties himself, gives himself, sheds his blood. How God so loved the world that God sent God's only son, Hosanna, Hosanna. The Palm Sunday shout, it's the Palm Sunday predicament. That Palm Sunday view is so, so, so beautiful. The believable lust of humankind for vengeance and wickedness 
and violence and greed ultimately overcome by the utterly unbelievable Savior's dying love for the world. The believable lust of humankind for vengeance and wickedness and violence and greed ultimately overcome by the utterly unbelievable Savior's dying love for the world. The parade that wasn't supposed to end this way with Christ on the cross bathed in the very tears of God. Often when you stand along a parade route, you find yourself straining to look back from whence the parade is coming. And as it passes by, you turn and you soon find yourself leaning in and leaning forward to see where it is going. Well, you can't stand along this parade route for very long without turning toward Jerusalem. And while you are shouting Hosanna, you can't help but find yourself shouting Hosanna with your face, like Jesus, set for Jerusalem. And when you know how it all is going to end, the Palm Sunday shout is fraught with praise and lament and gratitude. A shout in response to who Jesus is and all that Jesus gives. A shout that comes from deeper and deeper within your soul when you stand waist deep in a world so full of sin and suffering. A shout through tears. A shout with a fist raised. A shout from your knees in prayers, save, save, save. Somewhere in Mississippi, somewhere in Arkansas, somewhere in Illinois, and after last night, maybe somewhere not far from here, amid storms, death, and destruction, someone this morning is still going to shout Hosanna. Somewhere along a train track with a derailed train spewing chemicals in Ohio or in Minnesota, someone this morning is going to shout Hosanna. And yes, in Nashville, Tennessee, at churches all through the city, and at Covenant Presbyterian Church, where teachers and children were just the next people murdered by someone with a weapon made for nothing but war, the followers of Jesus are going to shout Hosanna through tears there, too. When I watched the children, the young people, and the families flood the State House in Nashville this week demanding change, demanding help from elected officials called to serve the good rather than feed the obsession and idolatry of guns, I couldn't help but think that at some level those young people, those children were shouting out, save us, save us. Some of my earliest memories of church life are from singing in the choir as a very young child. Processing on Palm Sunday down the aisle in my little white surplus. I'm not sure I was ever little, but my little white surplus. After the choir mother who would spit in her hand tried to calm down my cowlick. And of course we were all singing all glory, laud and honor making the sweet hosannas sing. 
few things may be more important in a congregation's life than creating those memories and giving our children the language and the song of faith for the life of discipleship like we just did. Giving them permission to shout in church now so they know they can shout to God later in their own life of faith hewn by all the world will surely bring. Because one day, someday, for our children, as for us, the shout becomes so much more than a sweet hosanna. A shout to Jesus that comes when you know how the parade ends. A shout from your gut and from the tips of your toes. Save, 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 save us and save your world. That same language of faith, that same song of faith that helps us to sing and to shout and to pray and to live amid the oh-so-believable sin of the world that clings so close, yet we yet boldly proclaim and cling not to the world's darkness, but to this unbelievable dying love for you, his unbelievable dying love for you and for me and for the world. Many, many Palm Sundays ago, the staff and I decided to change up the liturgy on Palm Sunday just a bit, much to our peril. There had been a growing practice in the liturgical Presbyterian world in the 90s and the early 2000s of turning Palm Sunday more towards Passion Sunday, a Sunday that looked to the cross of Christ and his suffering. Liturgically speaking, it means making the hard turn on a Palm Sunday, in a Palm Sunday service from the triumphal entry to the cross. And as we were planning worship that Sunday on a Tuesday, well, or weeks ahead, we were aware that such a practice, such a shift, had not really ever occurred here at Nassau Church. So yes, we had a palm parade and we sang all glory, laud, and honor, and after the welcome and the first lesson, the service turned, started to turn toward the cross. The gospel lesson was from the passion I preached on the cross. We moved through the rest of the service, and the final move that was different was that I said the benediction before the final hymn. There was no postlude, and the congregation was invited to leave in silence after we all sang, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Outside on the front patio, one of the first people through the door was a professor long since retired, moved away, who came up to me, more than just a bit irritated with me and the service of worship. The professor shook the palm at me like putting a finger in my chest and said, don't ever do that to me again. <laughs> and the professor, not joking in the slightest, walked away, not very happily. I'd only been here at Nassau a few years, and I knew the professor from the seminary pretty well. And I was sort of speechless as the professor walked away. Now, if it happened today, some 20 years later, this morning, though the benediction is not before the final hymn and we're not singing When I Survey the Wonders Cross, won't do that again. <laughs> but today, 
my cranky old self, my own weather-worn, world-worn faith. I might just say before the professor had a chance to turn away, I might just say, you're welcome. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Save, save, save. Amen.